My name is Justin. For those of you that have not met me, just glad to see everybody here today. Uh, we are in our last uh, week in Galatians. Uh, hard to believe. We have been in the series this week. We'll mark 11 weeks going through this book. It has been absolutely incredible. I have loved every single week of it uh, because what it does is it really uh, makes the foundation clear of how we should view the gospel and the church and the, the message and how that applies to our lives uh, on an everyday basis. Because what has happened in this church, Paul planted this church, they're a new church like our church, uh, and they heard the gospel, they heard the message, but some other teachers had come in and they had been distracting them and showing them a different gospel, a different message as Paul had said. Yet there is no other message that he makes clear over and over and over again. And that's kind of what we've been learning about going through uh, the, the past 11 weeks. And so we're ending this series today in Galatians 6. We're starting in verse 11. Uh, today's title is We Are a New Creation. There we go. Some people are ready to come to church this morning. <laughs> So one thing that I want us to remember um, as we go through this is we're, we're going to start in verse 11. We're starting chapter 6, verse 11. We're going to read to the rest of the book, but we're going to start and kind of sit in verse 11 for a little while uh, so you can read with me on the screen, it, or actually you can't because it's a great background. Um, so just listen to my beautiful voice. Galatians 6, verse 11. Oh, it is? Okay. For some reason, there's a white background in, in my screen. It says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. We're stopping right there. So one of the things that I want to bring remembrance to us is, before we get any further, is, is Paul's story. Paul, ha uh, Paul is the apostle. He wrote this letter to the Galatian church, and he has a crazy story. Uh, Paul was a man who was steeped in Jewish tradition. He was actually called uh, a Pharisee. And uh, he was part of the kind of Pharisee tribe in Israel, which was the sect of Israelites that were deeply involved in the law. They followed the law better than everybody else. And Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, meaning he was a better Pharisee than most Pharisees. He followed the law better. He followed the rules better. He, he was doing it at a younger age than most people were. He was the man that was making it happen. He, he was kind of like that golden child, the, the rising star. And so when Christianity came around, since Paul was so zealous about being a Pharisee and about the law, here was this thing called Christianity that was now... Um, they, they were in competition with or coming against everything that Paul loved and believed. They were saying the Savior had come. They were, they were saying that the, the Savior had, had died and that his people were part of killing him and that he had risen. And, and now all of a sudden that you had to believe in him for salvation, you didn't have to follow the law like he was taught his entire life. And so Paul becomes this man that begins to kill Christians. When the first martyr happens in the Bible, it says that they laid their cloaks at the feet of Paul, meaning he was overseeing what had happened. And if you read church history, it, it is believed that Paul had oversaw possibly the death of over 2,000 Christians in church history. He was the man that was spearheading the persecution of the church. Yet, 
Here he is in this letter fighting that same persecution, that same tradition that he was ready to kill for. And now he's fighting against it, saying, actually, I was wrong. This isn't the way, and my story is part of why you need to believe that, because Jesus met me personally and showed me that he is the true king, the risen Lord. And now I need you to know that he is the only way to heaven. And so he's ending this letter with the same urgency that we've had from the very beginning. He says these kind of key words. He's saying he's writing large letters with his own hand. He usually had a scribe. He dictated to the scribe, and the scribe would write it down. But he's writing this with his own hand. It's a, it's a big letter that he's writing to them, that he's making them read. And what Paul is trying to communicate here is that even though his letter is coming to a close and even though the series is coming to a close, we cannot let what he says come to a close. We can never walk away from the message that Paul has left here. And it's going to be something that no, no matter what we're preaching, no matter what we're talking about, we're gonna constantly be grounded in this message that salvation is a free gift that we cannot obtain, no matter how good we are, we cannot obtain it on our own, no matter how bad we are. We cannot be at a place where it cannot be given to us because it was never something that we can earn in the first place. And that it's the Spirit of God who works in our heart, not our willpower, not our ability to say no, but the Spirit's ability to transform our hearts and our minds. And so with that understanding, let's just continue to read in verses 12 and 13. Paul says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are, who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. See, Paul is saying there's urgency in what I've talked about. This is important. This topic, you can't walk away with it. You can't ever have a, a, a Christian walk that is serious, that is true, unless you understand this gospel, that, that Jesus came, he died, he rose, and he ascended. And when he ascended, he sent his spirit to be our helper. And in his life, in that good news of who he is, we now have eternal life, access to heaven if we believe in what he's done. But yet, we walk away from that. There are people that teach things that are against that. Even in subtle ways, because what Paul is saying here is they've walked away from the truth and there's underlying motivations for that. Whenever we walk away from the gospel, whenever we find our heart beginning to think, oh, I can be good enough, or oh, you know what, this looks like it will satisfy me better than this, than what Jesus has said, who is the ultimate satisfier, who is the only one I can find my, it, it, my contentment in. If I begin to believe in something else, there's always underlying motivations, and that's what Paul begins to hit on here. See, the surface motivation is this. These Jewish people were trying to say, hey, if you follow the law, you get circumcised, guess what? It's God, it will be pleasing to God. 
You have to do this. So the surface motivation is we just want you to, to make sure that you're truly accepted to God. We just want to make sure that you can really get into heaven, that you are really one of God's people. And to do that, yes, you need Jesus, but yes, you also need to follow this portion of the law. You have to become an actual Jewish person if you're a Gentile, which means you need to become circumcised. But yet, Paul reveals the two real motivations that are behind what these false teachers are teaching. And the first one is pride, and the second one is comfortability. Their pride wanted to parade around these new disciples to boast in their own work. Look what we did. They wanted to make a good showing in the flesh. Look at these people we converted. Look at how we're building the kingdom of God, right? Oh, these sound like great works. Look at these people that we converted today. Look at these people that I led to Christ today, that, you know, that, that I showed the way, that I discipled, that I brought into the kingdom. There's, there's that I that keeps popping up. And really, you, God's not taking credit for this. God's not taking credit for bringing salvation. God's not taking credit for their growth as a disciple. God's not taking credit for the building of the kingdom. So Paul says that one of the underlying motivations here is actually pride. And a lot of times when we begin to stray from the gospel, we realize that there's something that we tell ourselves, which is the surface, and then there's the underlying motivation, which is the truth. And the first truth here is that they're doing it for pride. The second truth here is that they're doing it for comfort. They didn't want to sacrifice for Christ. Why? Because who was the chief persecutor of the church at this moment? It wasn't the Roman Empire when Paul wrote this letter. It was the Jewish people. It was Israel that was the chief persecutor of the church, of who Paul used to be the main one. And so do you know how you didn't get persecuted during this time? As a Christian, as a Gentile Christian, you got circumcised. And so when the, when the Jews would come and they wanted to persecute, they would say, no, we're actually making converted Jews. See, haha, we're not really Christians. We're just all converted Jews here. Nothing to see. Just turn around, go, the, you know, go to the next door. They wanted to avoid persecution. When the persecutors came knocking on their door, they wanted to say, actually, you can go somewhere else. We're, all, we're the real deal. We're real Israel here. See, these two enemies of the gospel, pride and comfort, will continually find ways to thwart the gospel and God's work in our life. Something pride might say in your heart is you've stopped that sin for months now. You don't need to pray as much. I would say, hey, you, you remember when you were in, 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 the, in the depths of your sin? Remember when you were in that black hole and you needed Jesus and you cried out and he came and you began to cry out every day for him because you realized you cannot live a life that is not desperate for the one that is your savior? That you realize where you go in your life if you live any day without being with him? Remember that moment of desperation where you knew that you couldn't do it on your own, so you went to the only person that you knew could fix it, and that was Jesus. 
And you, you did that for months and months. And guess what? He did something in your heart. He changed your desires. He changed and renewed your mind. But then pride comes in. He says, man, you've been good. You haven't lied. You haven't watched porn. You haven't smoked. You know, you haven't done any drugs. You haven't, you haven't drank for a while. You can take this sip right now. Don't worry, it's not gonna lead anywhere harmful. You're good now. You can do it. You don't need to pray today. You don't need to read your Bible. You've been good for a while. The surface motivation is congratulatory. Like, yeah, God's really been working on my life, guys. He's been working on my life so much that I don't even need to be with him anymore. But the, the underlying, the true motivation of that is pride is, hey, I can do this on my own now, God. You did your thing, and I'm good now. I don't need you anymore. And that's easy to slip into. That's easy for me to slip into, to think, man, I've been doing good. I can skip prayer. I can skip, I can skip needing Jesus today. I'll be fine. I'll get through my day. But that thwarts the gospel in our life that speaks truth to us, that says this, we cannot do it on our own, whether we've been saved for 30 years or for 30 minutes. The amount of God that we need is the same today that we needed back then. And the moment that we start thinking that we are good enough on our own to kind of get through life without God, who is the person who got us to the place that we are in the first place, that is the moment that the enemy begins to win in our life. That's the moment that our desires begin to shift back. That's the moment that sin begins to creep in and temptation becomes more than temptation. It becomes an act in our heart. Comfort may say something like, God wouldn't want that for you. That's too painful. God wouldn't want you to go through that. That's gonna be hard. God doesn't want you to go through anything that's hard. Come on. You know, you're supposed to be happy all the time. You're supposed to have continual bestness in your life. That's not a word, but I don't want to use the word blessing because God gives us blessing every single day, whether it's material blessing or not is a different question. He gives us joy, but we want happiness constantly. We say to ourselves, God wouldn't want that for you. It's too, it's too painful. God doesn't want you to be persecuted. That's what they're saying. That's what, that, that's what the surface motivation is. Yet when you look at the people of God in Scripture, what do you see? Painful situations. I'm sorry if you've been a Christian for a while and somebody lied to you. I'm sorry if I've given off this falseness that it's not going to be hard. Because sometimes it actually gets harder when you become a Christian, when you start following God. Actually, life starts to fall apart more sometimes. Sometimes when it says in Scripture, when you want to do good, evil lies close at hand. But we, we give in to these lies of comfort that God just wants me to live a comfortable life. That's what Christianity is. I'll have a good job, I'll have a good house, and I'll have, you know, I'll have everything will be good, and I'll just do my thing and pass away, and 
Hopefully my kids will have a good life, do the thing, and pass away, and, you know, we'll go on. But comfort is not the ideal. When we say God wants my comfort and I'm Christian for comfort, what we're actually saying is that what the world idealizes above God is something that now I am idealizing above God. I am idolizing this, this, this idea of comfort above God because when you come to know Christ and you follow him, guess what? Things will be tough. Decisions that you want to make that you realize, like, I'm not supposed to make these decisions anymore. I need to make a different decision. Like, when you realize that when you follow Christ that you are no longer your own boss, that you, are, you do not sit on the throne room of your own heart, that there's actually a king that you submit to now. There's a king that you obey. There's a king that rules over your life and has authority over who you are. Guess what? There's decisions that he's going to need you and want you to make that will not be comfortable in your life, that may cause pain, that may be something that hurts. But yet comfort constantly stands as a motive that thwarts what God wants to do in our life. And what we have to do is we have to constantly examine our hearts. God, what is the underlying motivation for what I'm doing right now? Why is it that I'm, I, I, I feel good going through my day and binging on entertainment and not even having a moment with you. What is that? Is, is it pride? Is it comfort that has crept up in my life that I've begun to bow down to instead of you? Take those moments to examine, to repent, to turn away from that and to lean into Christ. There's moments this week that I had to turn off my TV to turn off Netflix and say, man, I'm about to go to bed without being with the one who saved me. And it wasn't like this rule thing, this religious thing. It was a desperation thing. Like there's, 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 there's temptation in my heart that's coming too close tonight. There, there's, there's hatred, there's anger, there's lust that is beginning to knock at the door of my heart that I'm not shutting down because I'm starting to think like, hey, I could do this on my own. Father, I re I'm sorry. I repent. I turn away from this. I turn off the TV as hard as it may be at 10 o'clock when I had a long day of work and the kids drove me crazy and the kids are asleep and my wife is asleep and now it's my moment of alone time. It's a different kind of pain than what Paul is talking about here, but let me tell you, it's still painful. <laughs> it still hurts. It's out of the comfort of what, how and how I wanted to live my life that moment and what I wanted to do. And like the false teachers here that came and taught the Galatian church, they can come with what looks like good intentions 
And those are the things that we need to watch out for. Those good intentions that are actually not the truth, not the gospel. That speak the good words, that say good things, that sound really great, but in the end they deny the motivation of our heart to serve God and begin to motivate us to do other things. In Galatians 6.14 it says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says his, he does have pride, but it's not in himself, it's in Christ. Guess what? There is something to boast in. There is something to be proud of. There is something to be joyous about. And it's not what I have done. It's not what I can do. It's what Jesus has done. Be proud of the message that you carry. Right? It's easy to get our proud priorities mixed up because I want to be the center of my proudness all the time. But Paul says, here is what I boast in. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what I have pride in. That is what I am proud to speak about. That is what I joy every single day to preach on. Is Christ crucified? The Bible says that it is the power unto salvation. If there's something I want to say that we should be proud of as a church, a message that we should be happy to speak about, something that should well up with pride in our hearts when we think about it's what Jesus has done and being able to boast in that to other people, saying, look at my life, look at what a disaster I was. And look at what God has done in me. Look at the man or the woman I am today. Look at the person that you see before him. Guess what? That is not because of what I have done. That is through the cross of Christ, through his sacrifice, through his worthiness, through his glory. I am what I am today. And so much today, because of comfort and pride, we shy away from being proud in the message of the gospel and being proud in what Jesus has done. And we let opportunity after opportunity slip us by to be proud in that. We have intentions to be excited to speak, but the intentions never turn into actions. And so I want to ask us today, let us be proud in what Jesus has done in our life. That we would share that with pride. If you, if you are just a proud person and you need to be proud about something, I'm, I'm giving you a ticket right here. Paul is saying, he, this, is, this is what you need. When, whenever the pride wants to turn inward, just begin to turn it outward. Whenever you want to take credit for something, just realize, and you say, I, like, no, him, he did this. And then, like, next week, we're going to have a bunch of super saved folk. It's like, how are you doing today? Blessed in Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus, I'm alive. I'm not asking you to be weird. <laughs> I'm just letting you know that this is what we have pride in as Christians. This is what 
we look to and say, man, look at what God has done. I can share that every single day and be excited to share it every day that I do it. And because of what Christ has done, Paul no longer lives in the comfort of the world. Paul says, Boast and accept in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Because of this message of the cross, Paul no longer lives in the comfort of the world. Its desires, its enticements, its promises, those things are all dead to him. Scripture actually has a lot to say about this topic. About us not living for the comforts of the world. One scripture that I've been meditating on personally a lot lately is in 1 John 2. It says, do not love the world and its things, or the love of God is not in you. That should convict the hell out of you right there. (laughs) Do not love the world and its things, or the love of God is not in you. We can have a repenting session right here just on that verse. In 1 Timothy 2, 8-9, Paul tells women, don't look at all the latest fashion and expensive things to wear, but wear godliness. Woo! <laughs> Jesus says this, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Talk about the ultimate discomfort that Jesus actually was the example of. When he prayed three times before he went to the cross and said, Father, if there's a way, take this cup from me. Father, if there is a way out of of having the same results but me not having to go through this painful, torturous death, one of the worst ways that mankind has ever thought up killing somebody before. If If there's another way, Can you tell me now? Because I'll take it. But he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, it's possible for us to not live in the world's comforts, its desires, its passions, but for God's desires in our life because of the work of the Spirit. We've been reading a lot about the work of the Spirit the past few weeks because the the Spirit is crucial. And Scripture, after Jesus is done on earth, he sends the Spirit for many reasons, but the Spirit empowers us to live this godly life, to be more like Jesus, to impersonate or be like his Holiness, his righteousness, his goodness, his patience, his long-suffering, his, his ability to deny the world, to deny his own desires and his own wants and to say yes to the Father. It's the Spirit that does this work in our life. In Galatians 6, 15, it says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And that is the kicker a new creation. 
A religious man named Nicodemus once came and talked to Jesus. And Nicodemus and Jesus were having this conversation about the kingdom of God and how to see it. And Jesus told Nicodemus, he said, in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Nicodemus didn't understand that. He's like, that doesn't make sense, God. And then Jesus kind of chides him, like, You're, you call yourself a religious leader, but you don't understand the spiritual new birth that I call you to. And that is what the Spirit does in our lives. The Spirit gives us a new heart and a, new, a renewed mind that the old passes away and that we are now a new creation. This is not about changing old ways. It's about becoming a new person. If you look at your heart and you wonder, I can't imagine my life not thinking this. I can't imagine my life w without kind of having this habitual sin in it. I can't imagine my life w without constantly killing people in my head because I hate them so much or cursing somebody out or, or, or getting drunk every Friday night. Like I can't imagine my life without these habits. I can't imagine my life going through it without this. And that, that's okay. Because it's not about that life that you're living. It's about the new life that the Holy Spirit is forming in you. See, he creates in us a new creation that has godly desires. A new creation that has died to the world and now is alive to him. That doesn't look at the comforts of the world, that doesn't look at the pride in self and think, yeah, that's how I want to live. But instead, centers everything on him. What once made you who you were no longer is what defines you when you are a new creation. Was it success that defines you that you lived life for or that you live life for now? Is it the latest fashion? Is it being the biggest drinker at the party? Is it your family? Is it your kids? Are these the things that define you? That if you lose one of these things that you feel empty, you feel broken, you feel like you're not who you are? These things that define us that are not Christ, these things become nothing. Sometimes it's hard to believe that. I've been in moments in my life where I think, I just can't imagine my life without desiring to be a multimillionaire. <laughs> Let's be real. Yet, in this new creation that God has formed in me, where I am no longer the old Justin, but I am the new Justin that God has called me to be, that desire is not there. My desire is for Christ and for him alone. I remember this funny story about my dad. 
My dad was a, a big troublemaker when he was a kid. My mom would never allow him to tell us stories of when he was in grade school because uh, my, my older brother ruined it for everybody. My dad once told the story of a prank that he played on his teacher. Uh, it was something dumb, like putting a whoopee cushion under like, one of their books or on their seat. And my brother went and did it. And he got, they got a call literally the next day that my brother had done the same exact thing that my dad had stole them a story of the night before. So from that moment on, my dad was banned from ever telling us stories of his days at school because he was just one of those prankster kids. Like the teachers hated him. Teachers quit because of my dad. Like they hated being in school because he was one of those kids. Yet my dad now at this point, he's a pastor. He's been pastoring for 35 years. He is a well-respected man of God in this city that I have been able to look up to, that I love, that I cherish, and I thank God he brought me into that family. My parents weren't perfect, but they showed me what godliness looked like and what character looked like. And so one day he, he was walking as an adult, walking, just going to the store or something, and he saw one of his teachers from grade school, and he went and said hi to the person, and he said he saw the fear in that teacher's eyes because they were still had like that, that traumatization of what he had done to them when he was in school. I mean, some of these stories were crazy. I could be here for another half an hour telling you the things that my dad did. It was awful. And so like he, he tells them, basically consoling them, like, no, it's okay, I'm a pastor now. And they were blown away. They could not believe that this terror of a boy had grown up to become a pastor. And that, to me, that, that, that is what a new creation looks like, that people that had not known about what had happened in your life, but they see you maybe some time later, and they look at you. They weren't there for the transition part. They say, man, I would have never guessed you would be who you are today. The transition is too great. There are people in this room that I know that I met them right when they were starting to learn about Christ, and I know who they are today, and I would never guess who they were, are today, and who they were when I met them. Because that is a new creation. Paul ends his letter with this prayer and benediction. He says this in 16 through 18. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. The people wanting to change the message of Christ will never be willing to sacrifice for it. Paul had the marks to prove his devotion. He had the marks. He had been beaten. He had been imprisoned. He had been stoned to an inch of his life for the cross of Christ. Paul himself is a testament of what a new creation is. What he once killed for, he was now ready to die for. I mean, you cannot get a bigger transformation than that. Something that you would kill somebody over one day is now something that you're willing to die for another. That speaks to the Spirit's work in his life. So if you find yourself today with pride, with comfort, at the forefront of your decision-making, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me that the psalmist David prayed, that I have found 
myself in need of many times. This prayer is in Psalm 51, verse 10. David says this, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I pray that (laughs) I'm glad I didn't start the prayer yet. I pray for us today that we would believe what the gospel says about us. That when we believe in Christ, that it's literally starting a new life in him. There are, there are things in, in our life that will constantly thwart that from happening. The two things that we read about today that constantly will try to thwart that from happening our comfort and our pride. And they can come in very unsuspecting ways in our life, ways that we may have not thought of, these thoughts leading to the underlying motivations of pride and comfort in our life. But the great thing about what Jesus has done and what his spirit does in our life is it creates something new where the old me has passed away and God creates a new heart, a new creation. Believe his word. Have faith in what he says, that we are a new creation. There are some of us We've been on a long journey of doubt. We've been on a long journey of, God, are you good enough for this? And Jesus, what he did, and what we need to believe today is that it was enough and that his spirit is here among us right now in order to see that work through in our heart. The Holy Spirit is here. He is present, and he is ready to work. So Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would give us faith to believe in what was spoken today, that you would help us be convicted over ways that we have allowed pride and comfort to rule our decision-making. And that we would pray that same prayer that the psalmist prayed. Create in me, God, a pure heart. Lord, I don't want the things that this world has to offer. God, I don't want the comfort, the desires, the passions of this world. Father, I've seen where they have led. But I bow before you this morning and say, God, I want you and you alone. 
You are the only one that has satisfied. You are the only one that brings joy. You are the only one that never leaves me wanting. Church, bow before him today. His spirit is here and he is at work in our lives. And as we worship, just begin and allow the spirit to work in your hearts. Because you will be surprised at the things that he does. Why don't we stand?